I'm going to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Last Sunday morning, if you were with us, you may recall that we started on a, uh, teaching some things about spiritual dominion, and I didn't get it all out of my heart, so I'm going to start where I was last week and go a little bit further. Um, really, I, I think it's safe to say that to get the most out of this morning, you really need to hear what, w- what went before what was said last Sunday morning. Uh, and so we encourage you to get a hold of that teaching if you weren't with us. Uh, obviously, we don't have time to go back over all of the things, and we laid some groundwork, uh, not even really knowing that I was going to make a series out of this, and still not sure that I am. I, I don't know that two weeks is a series, but we'll just see what happens. Um, nevertheless, we laid some groundwork based on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which says, And God said, here's the beginning of the, the, the really the recreation of the earth, not the... The, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but when he recreated the earth in six days, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, notice that image and likeness must be two different things. We think of them as the same thing. We think of physical appearance. And it does seem that, that man is made in the, in the similitude of God's appearance. We see when Moses, in Numbers chapter 33, when Moses asked to see the face of God, God said, you can't see my face, so God must have one. He said, but I'll put my hand, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over you so God must have a hand. And he says, I'll pull my hand away and let you see my back parts as I pass by. So it sounds like man's uh, um, body, man's form is similar to the form of God. But that's not what he's talking about here. Or at least it's not all he's talking about here. It may have some some meaning or, or maybe included in what he's saying. But he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Another translation says after our sameness. After our sameness. Now, folks, of all the things that we could talk about God, his power, his love, his mercy, his omnipotence, and, and, and so forth, probably, uh, at least in my thinking, the, the thing that stands out the most, if we're going to talk about being in the sameness of God or in his likeness, the thing that stands out the most to me about God is his holiness or his righteousness. We think of those as different things, but really they're, they're one and the same. God's holiness is the fact that he is righteous. And notice he's making man a righteous spirit being. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, sameness. And let them have dominion. Notice the purpose for being in the sameness of God. Uh, one, uh, one commentator said this. He said, God made man in the, clo- the closest he could possibly make to himself. Now, I don't think we fathom the depths of what all that means. We know that God's a spirit being and man's a spirit being. He's the only thing that God created here on the earth that was a spirit being in his same class. We know, uh, as we just said, that God made man righteous. He breathed into him the breath of life. So there would be no possibility for man to be unrighteous since it was the life or the breath of God that that caused him to, to be created, become a living being. So he's a spirit being who is righteous. For this purpose, to have dominion. I want you to understand something, folks. And, that, and this, is the, this is the real bottom line of everything that the Lord seems to be dealing with me about on this. And that is dominion is based on righteousness. Dominion is based on righteousness. Now, the word dominion is translated several different things throughout the Old Testament. Basically, three different words. Dominion, rule, or to bear rule. So he's talking about man being the ruler of all of his creation. Why? Because he's righteous. Because he's in God's class of being and he's righteous. 
I think if that just sank in, that would change our lives. Let us make man after our own image, in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over all the earth, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So we see that man was created as the ruler of this world. Um, one way we could say this, and I know some people get, get upset about using this term, but the Bible uses the term. Adam was made as the God of this world. And by that term, we just mean the ruler of this world. He was made the God. He was made the one that was in charge of everything on the earth. Everything that God created was under man's dominion. Now, we talked last time about dominion. There's only two ways that dominion can, can come. One is it to be delivered or conferred upon a someone, and that has to, if that is the case, then it has to come from somebody that has the dominion to be able to deliver it or confer it upon someone else. The second way that dominion comes is through conquest. We know throughout the world's history that countries have been taken over by other countries, conquer, conquered by other countries, and those countries have then become the rulers of the conquered nations. They take dominion over their territories. It's the only two ways that dominion can come. In this case, dominion came from the one who had the dominion, the greatest dominion, the creator of the earth. God conferred or delivered that dominion over to Adam. But we've got a problem. Because 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that now Satan is the god of this world. And all it means is he's the ruler of this world. It doesn't mean he's equal with God any more than Adam being the god of this world made him equal with God from a standpoint of, of position or power or ability. It just means he's the ruler of this world. And in in Luke chapter 4, and we talked about this last time, I believe. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was being tempted of the devil, the devil identified that he had the power and the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. And he identified further that it had been delivered unto him. Well, who delivered it to Satan? Adam did. Adam gave away his dominion. He gave away his position when he fell in the Garden of Eden. I want you to understand something, folks. When Adam lost his righteousness, he lost his dominion. However, we see even in the age of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant days, we see David, who was inspired by the Holy Ghost to say a number of different things. One thing he said was, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. He furthermore said, the silver and gold belongs to the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. Well, now if Satan is the God of this world, how could God still own all those other things? When it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the God of this world, that world, that word from the Greek uh, language, this translated world means age, literally eon. In other words, Satan is the God of this age. He's not the God of the world. In other words, his authority, his dominion has limits. Even as man's dominion in the Garden of Eden had limits. I don't believe man had the authority to rearrange the geography or the topography of the world. If he didn't like a mountain over there, I don't believe he could move it over to another place. Even though Jesus uses that example that faith would move mountains, he's using it as an illustration rather than saying, I believe, rather than saying, you can change the earth any way you want to. He's just saying there's nothing. Anything that seems impossible to you is is possible through the operation of faith. So Adam's dominion had boundaries too. Adam couldn't change the makeup of man. He could only exercise dominion or rule over what God had already created and the system that God had already set up. Adam didn't have the authority to say, well, I don't like this thing called gravity. Let's change that. 
No, he had dominion over what God had already created. So his dominion had limits. Satan's dominion has limits. I believe, quite, uh, quite frankly, and this is just my personal opinion, I believe this is what the book of Job is all about. The book of Job tells us the story of how Satan complains to God that Job is a perfect man, that Job is operating righteously. God draws it to his attention. He said, have you seen my servant Job? He's perfect. Listen, if God says you're perfect, that's pretty much it. But Satan said, yeah, but if you messed up his stuff, took away his stuff, he wouldn't serve you. And God answered Job and said, everything that he has is in your hands. Why didn't the devil know that? Why did God have to tell him everything that he possesses is in your hands? So the devil messes up Job's stuff. He steals, he robs from him, he destroys things in his life. And Job still serves the Lord. So Job comes back the second time. Or, I'm sorry, the devil comes back the second time. And says, well, if you afflicted his body, if you, if you made him sick, then he'd turn away from you. And God answered and he said, his body is in your hand, but not his life. Why didn't the devil know that? How is it possible that the devil did not know what the limits of his authority were? Most Bible scholars agree that the book of Job was the, is the oldest book of the Bible. What they mean by that is, it's the oldest story outside of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Well, maybe being God of this world didn't come with a handbook. I believe with all my heart. And again, this is just my opinion. But there is no scriptural evidence to refute it. If there were, I'd change my opinion. But I believe that the book of Job is about the devil finding out the limits of his authority. The important thing for you and I to recognize is the devil has boundaries or limits on his authority. And even under the old covenant, we see things beginning to change. God meets a man named Abraham. The Bible says Abraham believed God. He made a, God made a, 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 he gave him instruction. He said, follow me and go where I tell you to go and I'll make of you a great nation. I'll give you children as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And I'll bless you. And the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Well, that blessing through obedience changed everything that the devil meant to do harm against Abraham and in his life and made him one of the greatest men on the world, on the face of the earth. Greatest men in the world. We see his descendants following in his footsteps. Look at Joseph. Joseph was someone who had dreams given to him by God and his, his brothers wanted to kill him. Certainly the devil was behind that. He's already the God of this world. He inspired his brothers to kill him because of his dreams and his aspirations. But God turned it around. God made Joseph the ruler, second in command, the prime minister, I guess we would say, of the greatest nation on the face of the earth and provided a place for the descendants of Abraham until another one came along called Moses. Now Moses is an interesting guy. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 14. Because Moses is really following through on the blessing of Abraham. But there's some things that the Bible tells us and instructs us about Moses in the way that God dealt with him. That have a lot to do with spiritual dominion in my opinion. You 
You remember the story about the, the, the ten plagues that came against the Egyptians and against the Pharaoh. Finally, Pharaoh relents after all these things have taken place. The death of the firstborn was the last of the plagues, and, and that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And so he says, all right, go. Get out of here. We don't want to see you anymore. But then the people are so grieved because of the death of their children that they cry out against Pharaoh, and his grief overtakes him as well. And so he says, why did I let them go? Let's slaughter them all. I guess he's thinking, what have I got to lose now? So Pharaoh's army, the greatest army on the face of the earth, goes chasing after the children of Israel. Folks, I would liken that to the American invasion of Grenada. Pharaoh goes after Moses. Moses has led the children of Israel to the Red Sea. On one side are mountains. On the other side are mountains. Behind them is Pharaoh's army. And in front of them is the Red Sea. What seems to be an impassable barrier. So Moses cries to the people. Exodus chapter 14. Moses said unto the people, fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, he's doing the right thing, isn't he? He's saying God's our, our, our deliverance. God's our helper. The Lord will show unto you this day. The Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. Man, Moses is talking big, isn't he? God hadn't told him anything yet. God hadn't told him what to do. And the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And then the Lord says to Moses, Moses, what are you crying unto me for? Now, folks, I've said this many, many times. This seems like the perfect place to cry unto the Lord. You're surrounded on every side. There's an impassable barrier on three sides. There's the, 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 the enemy is arrayed against you from behind. You're totally outmanned and outgunned. What are you going to do? Well, isn't that the time that people look to the Lord? That's what Moses is doing, apparently. I mean, God's complaining. God says, what are you crying out unto me for? So he must be crying out unto the Lord. There must have been something between the time that he said to the people, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He must have turned his face to the Lord and said, okay, God, what do I do now? And the Lord says, the Lord rebukes him. And he said, what are you crying out to me for? Well, if he's not going to cry out unto the Lord, if he's not going to seek the Lord's direction, what should he do? Notice what God tells him to do. Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. But first, lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Notice God does not say stretch out your hand over the sea and I will divide it. He says stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Now, how could Moses do this if he didn't have dominion? And what gave him this dominion to be able to stretch his hand out over the sea and divide the waters? God can't be lying about this thing. If God's a liar, the whole book might as well throw the book away. God's a liar about this. He could be a liar about anything else. If God's a liar about even just this one point, he's unrighteous. And if God's unrighteous, then Jesus is not a holy sacrifice. Notice what God said. Don't talk to me about it. You do something. You stretch your rod out over the sea and divide the waters. Now, what does the rod have to do with it? Why in the world would God tell Moses to stretch the rod out? Is he saying that's your magic wand? Abracadabra, hocus pocus. Divide the waters. No, the rod represents Jesus. 
The rod is, the, is Moses' representation of the power of God, the righteousness that comes through the sacrifice yet to come, Jesus, the Son of God, that enables Moses to claim righteousness that has not yet even been won. Moses stretches his hand out, his rod over the sea, divides the water, and Israel goes over on dry ground. Pharaoh sees that and says, well, if he can do that, I can do that. Chases in after. The waters come together and Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea without a shot being fired. Nobody throws a spear. Nobody throws a rock. The greatest army on the face of the earth is destroyed in one fell swoop. Because one man exercised dominion for the deliverance of the people. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that was Moses. He was the greatest of the prophets. Well, was it just Moses? In Joshua chapter 3, it tells us about Joshua leading the children of Israel. Now he's taken Moses' place. He leads the children of Israel across the Jordan River on dry ground. Now, it's nothing that Joshua does. The Bible says that when he put the priests out bearing the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant absolutely represents Jesus and the redemption that he purchased for us. In other words, it represents our righteousness Jesus didn't obtain righteousness for himself. He obtained righteousness for you and me. And so the Ark of the Covenant represents everything that Jesus obtained, which was ultimate, the ultimate purpose for that redemption was your, you being righteous. So that God could restore you back to the place, even a better place, a better condition, better position than Adam had when he was first created. Joshua puts the priests out front carrying the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as their feet touch the edge of the water, the water parts. He's not even stretching a rod out. Now the symbol of Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant, not the rod that Moses carried. They went over on dry ground. Now Moses is doing the same stuff that, jo- that uh, I'm sorry, Joshua now is doing the same stuff that Moses did. Because he's acting in obedience to what God told him to do. And folks, under the old covenant, obedience was the source, was the means, was the vehicle whereby righteousness could be imparted or imputed to someone counted for them obedience is faith in action abraham believed god and it was counted unto him for righteousness every time somebody in the old covenant obeyed god it's because they believed in what he said and it was counted to them for righteousness now it was a short-term righteousness it couldn't be eternal it couldn't be long-term until jesus finished the work but in joshua chapter 6 we see the children of israel marching around the city of jericho Not saying a word until the seventh day. Then they shouted and the walls of Jericho fell down. What are they doing? They're exercising dominion over their enemies. They didn't stand around the wall and pray that God would cause the wall to fall. They didn't pray that God would just split a little hole for them so he could go in and fight the enemy. They obeyed God and walked around the wall. They shouted. It wasn't the shout that came from heaven. It wasn't God saying, okay, you've walked long enough. You've traveled enough distance. Now I'll deal with these walls. Their shout brought the walls down. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua's fighting against the enemies. He lifts up his hand. He said, turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. I want you to see this. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua's fighting against the enemies of Israel. Which would 
illustrate not only the devil, but whoever the devil is using against you. Or whatever the devil's using against you, whether it's sickness, disease, poverty, whatever the case is. Any work of the devil to hinder you from obtaining the blessing of Abraham. Notice it says in Joshua chapter 10, verse 10, Joshua's running out, of, uh, running out of daylight. He's defeating his enemies, but he's running out of daylight. Verse 12, Joshua chapter 10, verse 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day which the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. So we see Joshua's praying, right? But Joshua doesn't duplicate Moses' mistake. Moses' mistake was that he looked to the Lord to do something about the Red Sea and about getting them across. When God said, don't cry unto me, don't ask me to do it, you exercise dominion. You're the one that's in control here. You've got the rod. You've got what represents Jesus, my son, the sacrifice, the Messiah. You use the rod, stretch the rod out, and divide the sea. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting to me anyway. That Moses didn't stretch out the rod. You don't even see this in, in the, the Ten Commandments movies or any of that kind of stuff. Moses didn't stretch the rod out and say, now waters divide. He just stretched the rod out and God did what he knew they needed to have done. In this case, in Joshua's case, he's running out of daylight. He can't defeat the Amorites once it gets dark. They can escape. So Joshua spoke unto the Lord... In the same day, and, notice the word and in verse 12, and, that means he did something else. And said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still upon Gibeon. And thou, moon, in the, in other words, stay still, stay where you are, in the valley of Aion. Or however you say that. Agilon, maybe, I don't know. Who gave them these names? And the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Folks, can I ask you a question? Does God care about Israel more than he cares about the church? Did he care more about Israel whom the Bible says they are servants than he cares about you who he says, who the Bible says are sons? Who do you care more about? The people that work for you or your children? God did this for Israel. Why? Because they operated in obedience. That obedience counted for righteousness. It only counted for it. It couldn't be the real thing because Jesus hadn't won it yet. Jesus hadn't obtained it. Now, folks, we can stay here all morning long and talk about story after story after story of people that exercised dominion in the old covenant when they weren't even righteous. Because they were doing the work that God gave them to do. Just simply obeying. Turn with me over to Daniel chapter 3. I do want you to see one more here in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 3. Here's for the three, we call them Hebrew children. They were young men by that time. Probably teenagers, mid to late teens perhaps, when they exercised dominion over the fire, the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, and were delivered. Daniel chapter 3, I'll recap the story real briefly so we don't take a lot of time reading. Nebuchadnezzar has created a statue. 
And he's decreed that everybody in the kingdom has to worship and fall down before that statue. I think it was three times a day he would cause the music to play. That sounds kind of like a modern-day religion. Just a little bit. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar commanded everybody in the kingdom to fall down three times a day when the music played and, and found out that these three Hebrew captives that have grown up in his court aren't doing it. So he brings them before him and he, he challenges them. I mean, he, this, is, this is a challenge to his authority. So he says to them in verse 15, Now if you be ready, at what time you hear the sound of the music, you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made, then well. In other words, we'll count it like we're starting over. Clean slate. Fall down next time the music plays and we'll just say that's good. Look how merciful I am. But... If you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now notice what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Here's the king. He's the most powerful king in the universe. At that point in time at least. And he says, okay, here's how it's going to be. I'm going to be the good guy here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you fall down the next time you hear the music play. And worship my statue. Then... I'm delivering you from all of your past sins. I'm wiping out the fact that you haven't worshipped me before now. And you've broken the commandment that I gave to the kingdom. But if you don't, if you don't fall down and worship, I'm going to throw you in the midst of the fiery furnace. Now, what's going to happen to you then? Who can possibly deliver you from that? Notice how the men answer. These three guys answer and said... O King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, they said, we don't even have to group up together about this. We don't have to pray. We don't have to decide and and, and have a conference. We are not careful how to answer you in this matter. In other words, for us, there's only one answer. We've already decided what that is. It's the reason why we didn't worship your statues to begin with. Here's how it works. If it be so, O King, our God, who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Now remember, that was his question. He said, if you don't worship the image next time you hear the music, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace and who's going to help you then? They said, well, we've already got this figured out. If it be so, in other words, the if it be so is a reversal back upon the king's responsibility. The king tries to put it on them. The king says, now here's, you've got a choice. This is up to you. If you worship when you hear the music play, everything will be fine. But if you don't, then I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Your choice. But if I put you in the fiery furnace, that's the end of you. Who can deliver you then? They turn it around and say, if it be so. If it be so means if you throw us in to the midst of the fiery furnace. That's the only thing in question now as far as they're concerned. Now, as far as the king's concerned, the question is, are you going to worship the image or not? As far as the three guys are concerned, the only question is, Are you going to throw us in the furnace or not? Because we're not worshiping your image. If it be so, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, now most translations or most teachings are about if God doesn't deliver us. Now think about how stupid this would be for the next statement that they make. If, If not, if God doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to worship your image. Seriously? You know, if they're burned up in the midst of the fiery furnace, is worshiping the image an issue anymore? Now, if not, has nothing to do 
with if God doesn't deliver us. In fact, they just said in verse 17, he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. They're making a declaration of faith. He will deliver us. But if not, the if not is not what God does. The if not is about what Nebuchadnezzar the king does. If not, meaning if you don't throw us in, we're still not worshiping your image. Then let me prove it to you. What they've done is challenged his authority. They've challenged him as the most powerful king on the, place, on the face of the earth. You're trying to put it on us whether or not we're going to worship? Well, that's already settled. The only question is whether or not you're going to throw us in the fiery furnace. If you do throw us in the fiery furnace, God will deliver us out of your hand. When they say that, that's when Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. Notice verse, 18, uh, verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. One translation says out of control with rage. And the form of his visage, in other words, his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. One, uh, uh, it's a part of the Apocrypha. But it says he caused the fire, the flames, to, to, uh, uh, to fly up 49 cubits above the top of the furnace. Now that would be about 150 feet. So we're talking about pretty hot. We know that it was hot enough to kill the men, the strongest one of his warriors, his soldiers, that just came to the door to throw them in. So we're talking about a significant fire. Some people depict it otherwise. But it was some kind of fire. Nebuchadnezzar was so mad, he wanted to make sure nobody can escape this fire. Now I'm going to pick up in verse 23. And I'm going to read from the Septuagint. Because it brings out some things that the, the King James leaves out. Then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace... And walked in the midst of the flame, singing praises to God and blessing the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. And he wondered and rose up in haste and said to his nobles, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said unto the king, Oh, yes, O king. And the king said, But I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire. And there has no harm happened to them. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. Again, the Apocrypha brings out something about this, uh, uh, this song that they sang. And a part of the song was he turned the, the, uh, the flames into a moist wind that blew around them as they walked through the fire. Now, let me ask you a question. Why in the world would God do something like this? We know other cases where people and Christians, good people have, have died in fires and, and stuff like that. Why would God do something like this for them? Well, if you'll notice, they're exercising their authority. They're not asking God, what do we do about this? They're not saying, Lord, if we, if we go into that fire, will you be with, there with us? Will you help us? They're not timid about it at all. They're standing before the king, the representative of Satan on the earth. The glory of the kingdoms belongs to Satan. Satan's behind this guy too. He says, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. If you throw us in, our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will. What would cause these guys to say that? I know so many Christians that would have backed up and said, well, we're, we're hoping for the best, but, you know, God loves martyrs. These guys aren't willing to be martyrs. They could have been. 
Bible says martyrs have obtained a better resurrection. They weren't willing to be one. They said he will deliver us. How in the world could they know that God had come through for them and something like that? Because they knew who they were. They knew that they had kept the, the word of God. They're the ones along with Daniel. These three along with Daniel were the ones that wouldn't eat the king's meat when they were first brought into captivity. They're the ones that have made a pattern of their lives of obedience to the word. And that obedience always counted under the old covenant. In the Old Testament, it always counted as righteousness. They know they have rights because of their right standing, which is the right standing with God, which is what righteousness means. It means right standing with God. Yeah, Satan is the God of this world, but he's not the God of them. Even under the old covenant. Now turn with me over to the first, uh, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see two verses of scripture here before we close. Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 5. If you want to turn to both, you can. If not, we'll give you time to get there later. Romans chapter 5. Here is what Paul said as he was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Now remember, and again we're, we're running quickly over some things that we covered a little bit more detail in a little bit more detail last Sunday morning. You remember when uh, in John chapter 3 when uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus says, good master, we know. Or it calls him rabbi, teacher. We know that you've come from God because no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus responds and says, except thou be born again, thou cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we've said before, some people think that Jesus changed the subject. Some people that, that, that just preach salvation and that's their, their message and you know, evangelism is, is really the only thing that they, that they focus on. And nothing wrong with that. But some people will say that come from that perspective that Jesus got down to what was important. Well, I agree with that. But he didn't change the subject to get there. Jesus is very simply saying, Nicodemus, I understand that miracles have drawn you. Miracles are a part of the kingdom of God and you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born again. Now, folks, what is being born again about? Being born again, we can use all kinds of different phrases. I think a lot of times we confuse people because of the phrases that we use. Being born again is about making Jesus the Lord of your life. That's certainly true. Being born again is about praying the prayer of salvation. That's certainly true. But ultimately, it comes down to this from God's point of view. Being born again is being made righteous. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus is all about. It's about you and I being made righteous. Not having righteousness of the Old Testament through obedience, it's counted as something, it's counted as righteousness for us, but being made a change of nature. In other words, it's a reversal of the fall of Adam. It's a reversal of the spiritual condition, the spiritual nature that occurred because Adam fell. Except you be born again, except you be made righteous, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying, look, forget about the miracles. Being born again is the key. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you want to see miracles? It's about being made righteous. Jesus performed miracles on the earth because he was a righteous man, anointed of the Holy Ghost. These men in the Old Testament, these things that we've identified, just in the few stories that we talked about, and we've left out hundreds, Hundreds of other examples where people exercised authority even though they were not righteous in nature but because of their obedience to the word it was counted to them for righteousness and God shared his power with them. 
they exercise dominion over the God of this world to overcome the works of the enemy. Why? Because each one stood in a place where they were operating in obedience to God's word to accomplish what God had for them to do. That's what Jesus did, folks. Jesus was a righteous man. He wasn't born into sin, so he didn't need righteousness counted unto him. He was a righteous man, anointed of the Holy Ghost. We said before, Jesus did his first miracle only after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. Baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape shape as a dove. But Jesus has, has had to have some kind of experience before then where that righteousness had, exor- had been the, the foundation of the exercise of dominion. We know that because of the first miracle that he did perform was the changing of the, turning of the water into wine in Cana of Galilee, the wedding feast at Cana. And his mothers tell the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, if Jesus has not exercised some dominion, if there's not been some benefit of his righteousness, even while he was a young man, before he was ever anointed of the Holy Ghost, why is his mother so intent on saying, follow his instructions? Why would his mother instruct the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it? It sounds like no matter how dumb it may sound, no matter how little sense it makes to you, do what he says. Why? Well, what he says must work. You can see that, can't you? And that's before he's ever been anointed of the Holy Ghost. Or, or, well, her experience with, with that has been before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. She says it after he's been anointed of the Holy Ghost. We don't have any record that she knows that. We don't have any record that she was there in the party when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. We don't know. We don't know what she knows yet. He seems to be kind of upset with her because she seems to be pushing him into something he says, I may not be ready for yet. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Thine hour has not yet come. Really? Well, you did a pretty good job of turning the water into wine, Jesus. Can't wait to see what happens when your hour is come. So there seems to be a little bit of trepidation here on the first miracle. Yet her opinion, her position is what he says works. So do whatever he says. Why? Because he was a righteous man. Now that he's anointed of the Holy Ghost, all bets are off. He's got the power of God, as the scripture says, the spirit without measure. Why? Because now he's got, as a righteous man, he is eligible For the power of God to do the work that God has for him to do. He's righteous in nature and he's anointed for the work. Did you find Romans 5 yet? Well, if not, look on with your neighbor because we don't take any more time here. Romans chapter 5 verse 17. For if, since literally, by one man's offense, Adam's offense, Adam's sin in the garden. For if... Or since by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Death reigned upon all mankind because of Adam's singular sin. Much more. Everybody say much more. I don't know if you've been made aware of it, folks, but the much mores in the Bible are really good. Much more. They which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, the abundance of grace can be summarized very simply as this, the sacrifice of Jesus. Everything God did for you, he did through Jesus. Not true in the old covenant because they had a promise 
of the work to come. But for us, looking back to the cross, the abundance of grace, everything God has done for us, every kindness God has shown to us is through the finished work of Jesus. So the abundance of grace is the sacrifice or the finished work of Jesus. And notice what it brings about, what it results in, the gift of righteousness. Now notice what that righteousness, as, as from the perspective or the point of view of the Holy Ghost, who inspired Paul to write this. Look at what the Holy Ghost says righteousness is supposed to produce in you. Dominion. Dominion. Since we know that by Adam's sin, death passed upon all men. In other words, Adam's sin made Satan the God of this age. Not the God of you. Not even the God of the whole world. Not even the God of everything in the world, but the God of this age. The Bible says that the earth is groaning and travailing, waiting for the manifestations of the sons of God. In other words, another way to say that is the earth is is groaning and travailing, waiting for the right people to take control again. Well, who are the right people? The sons of God. Since we know that Adam fell and his fall delivered dominion, Over this age, the age of man, over this age unto Satan, much more true is it that those who are made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus shall reign in life. Notice it doesn't say reign in heaven. It's talking about this life. Shall reign, Amplified says reign as kings in this life by one Jesus Christ. Turn me over to James chapter 5. We'll close with this. James chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse uh, 13 to get the context of what's being said. Is any among you afflicted? The word afflicted means test trials or troubles. Any, anybody going through a hard place, hard time in life? Here's what to do. Let him pray. Now he's writing to the church. He's writing to righteous people. He's writing to people that are born again. For the most part, spirit-filled too, I would imagine. So he says, is any among you afflicted? You're going through a hard time? Here's what you do about it. Pray. Is anybody merry? Things are going good for any of you? Let him sing psalms. Be sure and rejoice and thank God for the good things that are happening. Is any sick among you? Verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, not the oil, not the elders, but the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, please notice verse 16. Confess your faults. The word false is the word sins. Things that you've got between one another. He's not talking about confession like Catholics do. He's saying if you've got anything between you and somebody else, then go fix that. Go clear that up. Confess your faults one for another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The context that he's saying this is unforgiveness between you and somebody else will hinder your healing. Fix that. It's not worth holding a grudge and being sick. Can you see that? Confess your faults, literally sins, one for, to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. I believe verse 17 should start with this. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Because that's not just true where healing is concerned. It's true where everything is concerned. 
Yeah, and we read that, and so many times the devil's sitting on your shoulder and says, if you could just find a righteous man. Well, he gave you an example of one. A righteous man like this. Elias, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Thank God Elijah was a righteous man. Now, what do we know about Elijah? Well, we don't know where he came from. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1 starts off and says, And Elijah the Tishbite showed up and says, It's not going to rain again until I say so. I don't even know what a Tishbite is, but Elijah was one of them. He shows up out of nowhere. We don't know his heritage. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what training or experience or practice he's had at being a prophet. He just shows up and says, it's not going to rain till I say so. I like this. And it tells us about the, uh, the test that he had. The, there was uh, Baal worship was big in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, who were the rulers of, of the kings of Israel. And he finally gets tired of it and he says, okay, let's have a contest. If Baal's Baal, let's serve him and forget about God. But if God's God, let's forget about Baal and serve him, serve God. So he calls for a contest on, the mountain, on, the, on Mount Carmel. He says, all right, the God that answers by fire will be God. No way to fake that, is there? So he gives the prophets of Baal their first choice. There's, there's 450 of them. I don't know how many of them are doing the, the, the work, but there's 450 of, the, of, uh, of men that are counted as prophets of Baal that are around there or present for the, the contest. So the lead prophets, I guess, lead priests, whatever they were, they start doing all kinds of crazy things. They start jumping up and down on the altar. They start cutting themselves with stones. Folks, if you read some of the Old Testament, you can see where some of the goofy stuff that happens with young people nowadays come from. They're doing all kinds of things. Finally, after a while, Elijah starts making fun of them. He said, well, maybe your God's asleep. Finally, he says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Gives them every opportunity. After several hours of this stuff, he finally says, all right, that's it. You've had your chance. So then he makes it tough. He said, all right, here's what I want to do. Now, remember, it hadn't rained for three years. They're in the midst of the worst drought that the nation has ever known. So he says, here's what I want you to do. Rebuild the altar. Put the wood back in place where they jumped all around it and messed things up. He said, I want you to dig a trench around the altar. He said, now I want you to soak the, soak the, the altar and the wood and the sacrifice with water. Three great big old giant barrels of, of water. And the water soaked the, the, the sacrifice, soaked the wood, ran down from the altar and filled the trench around it. And then Elijah just simply prays a simple prayer. He said, now here's, here's what a righteous man looks like. He said, God in heaven, I want you to do three things. I want you to prove that you're the most high God, number one. I want you to prove, number two, that I'm your servant. And number three, I want you to prove that I did all these things at your word. Stands up from his prayer and fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, burns the wood up, vaporizes the rocks and the water around it. And everybody's standing there looking and says, okay, I think the contest is over. That's when Elijah, now it doesn't say he has it done. The Bible says Elijah took a sword and killed 450 of those prophets of Baal. All all 450 of them. 
There were some advantages of being ministers in the old covenant. (laughs) Once people were identified clearly, you could take care of things as you need to. Now, some people would say, wow, how can it get any better than that? Here's Elijah, a great man of faith and power. He's He's heard from heaven. He's done these things at the direction of the Lord. He's proven that God is God to the whole nation of Israel. But then word comes back to Queen Jezebel, who's not there, that Elijah has killed all 450 of her prophets. Because worshiping Baal turned out to be the prophets finding out from, from the queen what she wanted them to tell the people, and they'd do so. So she says, I'm going to do the same thing to Elijah this t- by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to cut Elijah's head off just like he cut off the heads of my prophets. Elijah, this great man of faith and power who's just won this great contest, maybe the greatest contest between God and some other God, some other false God or image or whatever in the history of the world, he hears that and he goes running up into the mountains. He sits down under a tree and says, Oh God, I don't know why you've let this happen to me. All I've done is served you. Remember in in James chapter 5 verse 17 it says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. That means emotions. That means he had the same feelings about stuff as you have. And so when Elijah was threatened, now the power of God, the anointing of God's not on him anymore. It was on him for the contest. Now it's not on him. Folks, you need to understand something. Just as Jesus was righteous by nature, he was anointed to do a work. Now that anointing wasn't always present. It wasn't always present on Jesus. It's not always present on somebody nowadays. Nobody could stand the anointing of God upon them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not the way it works. That's why there are greater anointings at some times and lesser anointing at other times. It's It's just the way that God determines it. It's not up to the individual. Now Elijah is not anointed. He's not anointed to run up into the mountains fleeing from Jezebel. We'd like to think... That we, in Elijah's place, would walk into the king's court and say, who's going to kill me? But apparently he knew that that's not how it worked. Or else he would have done just that. So he goes running up into the mountains. He hadn't heard God say anything about escaping Jezebel. So he takes off. He lights out for the hills. He starts complaining. He says, I'm the only one left. Everybody's backslid but me. God reveals to him that that's not the case. And then he speaks to him through a still small voice. Now, let me ask you a question. If a guy is that, uh, well, let me, let, me, let me just come right out and say it. Elijah, when he's running from Jezebel, I can relate to some of that. When he lets his emotions get the better of him, and now he's not standing up as the great man of faith and power, he reminds me a lot of me and you. And that's the whole point James is making in verse 17. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He didn't have anything that you don't have. As a matter of fact, he has a lot less than what you have. He has the same emotions to deal with that you have. He has the same thoughts. He has the same doubts. He has the same fears that come against him that you have come against you and that I have come against me. But the reality is simply this. Because he was counted as righteous before God, that's why miracles worked. Not because of how he felt. Not even, God didn't even hold the mistake against him going up into the mountains. God finally asked him, said, Elijah, what are you doing here? That's when Elijah starts complaining. He says, everybody's backslid but me. I'm the only one left. God says, I got 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knee to Bill. What do you mean you're the only one left? 
God doesn't even hold that against him. He doesn't even say, that's it, you're out of being the prophet. You had a good run while it lasted. But we, may, we need to kill you up here so nobody knows what really happened to you. Do away with you so nobody knows how afraid you were of the queen. Nothing like that. He doesn't even hold it against him. The point is simply this, folks. It's not about how we feel. It's about the righteousness, which is the foundation for the dominion that God has given us. You know what I believe was going to be one of the saddest things in all of the universe? In all of eternity? There are going to be so many Christians that get to heaven with their questions and their attitudes. And boy, you hear people say it from time to time. Maybe not all the time, but from time to time. You hear people say, well, when I get to heaven... I'm going to ask the Lord why he let this happen to me. I'm going to ask the Lord why he put all this stuff upon me in my life. I believe one of the saddest things throughout eternity is when Christians get to heaven, they'll find out they're the ones that had authority. God didn't put it on them. They let it happen because they didn't know who they were. That has to be the case, folks, or at least I believe it's part of it. Because the Bible says in heaven, God will wipe away every tear. What in the world are people going to be crying about in heaven? It's going to be some kind of sorrow because he wipes away the tears. If they're tears of joy, he's not going to wipe away those tears. The Bible wouldn't say that he would. So if people are crying for sorrow, what in the world are they crying about in heaven? Well, I can only think of two things. One is people that we didn't reach before we got there. And secondly, lost potential here on the earth when we realize the things that we could have done if we'd just taken the word at face value what do you think the church would be like if we knew that those that receive the gift of righteousness shall reign as kings in this life folks this would be a different world the devil would still be running rampant sin would still be in, in vogue but the church would be a different animal Church would be a place where people ran to instead of trying to run from. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more. They that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life as kings through one Jesus Christ. You know, there is in the heart of every man a desire. And, and one of the reasons I wanted, I wanted to cover some of these and mention some of these Old Testament stories, when you read things like that, something on the inside of you rises up. Something on the inside of you rises up and says, yeah, I want to do that too. I want to be like that. I want to call fire down from heaven. I want to walk through the fiery furnace. I want to divide the red seas that come against me. I want to stop the sun and the moon if necessary and cause the walls of Jericho to fall down before my enemies. I want to do that too. You know why we all want that? Because God put it in us. Recognize that that is the, a God-given desire to exercise dominion over the earth. And not, as we said before, not to exercise dominion over me and you. I don't want to exercise dominion over you so you have to fall down and worship me or do what I tell you to do. Okay, I'd like some of you to do what I tell you to do. But nevertheless, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about exercise dominion over the devil. Exercise dominion over the enemy and his influences that are designed to stop you and rob you from what you know the blessings of God are. That rises up in every one of us. That is an innate, inborn 
desire, spiritual desire, godly desire for every one of us to exercise authority over God's enemies. They that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life as a king through one Jesus Christ. Let's pray.